So our current series is called The King in Jerusalem, and we began it at the beginning of February with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we recreated this morning. So we looked at Palm Sunday 10 weeks before Palm Sunday, and that's because a lot happens between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, and we wanted to thoroughly explore all that Jesus said and did on his last visit to Jerusalem. Now, it's worth knowing that uh, there are five sections or blocks of Jesus' teaching in Matthew's Gospel. And we've recently been looking at the last block of teaching, which is all about Jesus' future return and final judgment. Today, we pick up the story at the point where Jesus has just finished his last block of teaching. Verse 1 says, when Jesus had finished saying all these things. And we have a similar sentence in Matthew's Gospel at the end of each block of teaching. But this one says, when he finished saying all these things. So the teaching is finished. And the main event, the purpose for which Jesus came, is now upon us. And Jesus says, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Jesus' crucifixion shouldn't have come as a surprise to the disciples. That's why Jesus says, as you know. But Jesus had spoken to them about these things on numerous occasions, but they just hadn't understood what he was saying. So Jesus' life, ministry, and purpose is coming to a head. And at this crucial point in the gospel, we're going to see two very different responses to Jesus. Now, those of you from the UK uh, will know that Vegemite, and bear with me, this will make sense, uh, Vegemite is like a a poor man's Marmite. Uh, We don't eat Vegemite in the UK. Uh, We eat Marmite. It's a much uh, better, stronger flavor. I can see I'm not getting a lot of support for this. Um, But there it is. And and they used to advertise it by saying, and this was their slogan, you either love it or hate it. And in the Gospels, Jesus is a kind of Marmite character in that he evokes very strong reactions. People either love him or hate him, and there doesn't seem to be a lot in between, and we're going to see that contrast today. In the 16 verses that Louise read, there's a lot of hateful plotting. But in the middle of that, sandwiched in between, is one of the best examples of loving devotion to Jesus that we see anywhere in the Gospels. We'll start with the hateful plotting. The religious leaders had met at the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, we know from other sources that Caiaphas was devious and manipulative. Uh, He was known for political maneuvering. And they had met for one purpose, for one purpose, to figure out how they could kill Jesus. And we shouldn't be surprised by this either. Back in Matthew 12, we read these words. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So this plot is a long time 
in the making, and it's always there in the background in Matthew's Gospel. The religious leaders hated Jesus because he exposed their hard-heartedness and hypocrisy. Uh, Not only that, but following Jesus requires humility. We have to face up to our sin and our wrongdoing and turn away from it. We have to repent. And the religious leaders were far too proud for that. They didn't want to repent. They didn't want to admit that they were wrong. And I think today there are many people who deep down suspect that the good news of Jesus might be true, but perhaps they just don't want to change. And so often in our culture, people will try to kill Jesus, not physically, but intellectually. I've got a friend who regularly posts anti-Christian memes on Facebook. He's constantly ridiculing Christianity, and he does it so much that it's, it's almost like he's trying to convince himself that it isn't true. It's like he's trying to kill Jesus in his own mind. And then in a more physical way, in many countries, they've tried to eradicate Christianity. Uh, They've tried to destroy the church, the body of Christ. Christians are the most persecuted group in the world today. There's a lot of hatred towards Christianity uh, and the church, and, and therefore there's a lot of hatred towards Jesus. People, the world, is still trying to kill Jesus today. But back to the religious leaders. They're determined to kill Jesus, but they don't want to risk seizing him during the festival because there may be a riot. Moreover, they don't know exactly where Jesus is or what he intends to do next. So they've got a problem. How are they going to get hold of Jesus before the festival? That's what they'd met to discuss and work out. And then the answer to their problem walks through the door in the form of Judas Iscariot one of the twelve. He says to them, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? And the religious leaders count out 30 pieces of silver. Why? Why did Judas do that? There are all kinds of theories, and of course we'll never know for sure. Um, There's a strong possibility that the name, uh, Judas's name, Iscariot, is linked to the word Sicari, and the Sicari were a splinter group of the Jewish zealots who wanted to expel the Romans by force. And, and they were known for carrying daggers concealed in their clothing for kind of hit and run, I guess you call them terror attacks. Perhaps when Judas realized that Jesus wasn't going to overthrow the Romans by force, he became disillusioned and angry. And we remember on that first Palm Sunday, uh, the crowds welcomed Jesus as a conquering king. They expected their Messiah to liberate them from the Romans. And it was largely the, the crowd's disappointment at seeing Jesus at the mercy of the Romans that led them to shout those fateful words, crucify him, crucify him. Maybe... That's what was going on in Judas's mind. Another possibility is that he thought he could force Jesus' hand 
You know, if a mob turned up to arrest Jesus, then maybe Jesus would respond with some dramatic display of power and the Jewish rebellion would be underway. Believe it or not, we sometimes behave in a similar way. You know, maybe God hasn't answered our prayer in the way that we want. Or maybe God isn't doing what we might expect him to do. And so we start to push God away and to keep our distance. And our relationship with God suffers as a result. Have you ever done that? You know, God's not doing exactly what you want. You kind of, kind of start keeping your distance. I think I have. And it's something we need to guard against. Or we try to force God's hand. We make big decisions and, or, or we embark on a life-changing course of action without any regard for what God might want. And then we expect God to fall in line with our plans. Do you ever make plans without even considering what God might want? I don't mean planning what you're going to have for dinner, but uh, big plans. Don't we all do that sometimes? We start doing our thing and then we ask God to bless it without having asked God to help us to discern whether it's the right thing in the first place. Again, we need to guard against this. So Judas may have been uh, disillusioned. He may have been trying to force Jesus' hand. And I guess with a decision of that magnitude, there's all kinds of things that come into play. But one thing we know for sure is that Judas was greedy. Judas was greedy. In John's Gospel, when the woman pours oil on Jesus' head, it's Judas who kicks up a fuss. And this is what it says in John 12, 4-6. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. Comes back to what Jesus said in Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Money, wealth, materialism, it can have such a powerful grip on us. Here's a man who not only met God face to face in the person of Jesus Christ, but he spent three years in close proximity to Jesus. He witnessed Jesus's miracles. He heard Jesus's wise teaching. He experienced his love, grace, and mercy. And yet, money and materialism won the battle for his heart and for his allegiance. Materialism is without doubt one of the greatest threats to a person's eternal salvation. And that's why Jesus spoke so much about money. Our attitude to material wealth is actually a very good litmus test as to how much we really love Jesus. So now our attention shifts from the hateful and greedy to the loving and generous. 
Jesus was in Bethany. It's a little village about three kilometers away from Jerusalem. He's attending a meal in his honor at the home of Simon the leper, which presumably that's someone that Jesus had healed. And we know from John's gospel that those siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, were there. Uh, They also lived in Bethany, and it was in fact Mary, the brother of Lazarus, who poured the oil out over Jesus. Now I want you to think of the thing that you own which has the most sentimental value. The thing that you own which has the most sentimental value. And also think of the thing that you own that has the most monetary value. If you own a house, don't include that, but anything else. So most sentimental value, most monetary value. It could be that they're one and the same thing. For example, a very expensive piece of jewelry that used to belong to your grandmother, something like that. And if that's the case, if that's the case, then then, then you will understand something of the value of this perfume. But we're not talking about a wealthy family. So this jar of nard or this perfume is most likely some kind of family heirloom. And it's worth a huge amount of money. We've already heard more than a year's wages. It's probably the closest thing that Mary had to a super or an insurance policy. And in an act of love and devotion, Mary poured it all out upon Jesus' head. Imagine pouring out all of your super in one single act of love and devotion to Jesus. It's a big deal. And the disciples were horrified. seems that Judas was the spokesman, but I think the other disciples had a similar reaction. Verses 8 and 9, we read, When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Remember that Jesus had literally only just told them the parable of the sheep and the goats, and we looked at that last week, where Jesus stressed the importance of caring for the poor and actually gave um, a terrifying warning to those who neglect the poor. The disciples have got this swimming around in their minds. So apart from Judas, their intentions are good. They are trying to... uh, to apply this parable that Jesus gave to the immediate situation. Albeit it's much easier to be generous with someone else's money. Uh, That jar of perfume didn't belong to them. It was nothing to do with them, what uh, Mary did with it. And Jesus corrects them. He says, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, whenever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. In other words, there is only one point in human history where this act could have been performed, and it was there and then. Because what seemed like an extravagant waste was actually the means of preparing Jesus' body for burial. I wonder if you noticed that Lazarus, the man whom Jesus raised from the dead, he was there. 
He was there reclining at the table, watching Jesus being prepared for his own burial. And the raising of Lazarus is, of course, a sign of things to come. And isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful that we're reading about this beautiful act of devotion over 2,000 years later, just as Jesus said we would be? No act of sacrifice for Jesus is ever wasted or forgotten. No act of sacrifice for Jesus is ever wasted or forgotten. Of course, Jesus is the only person in this narrative who fully understands what's happening, who can see the implication of all these events. And Jesus is in complete control. He's not surprised by any of this. He knows that his purpose is to die for the sins of the whole world. In Luke 9.51, it says, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He set out for Jerusalem knowing exactly what awaited him there. He was determined to fulfill God's purposes. And the religious leaders, like so many people in positions of power, and at the moment it's hard not to think of someone like Putin, the religious leaders thought they had far more control than they did. They thought they were calling the shots. And with Judas on board, they thought they had the upper hand. But God would use their evil intent to bring about his good purposes. And Jesus would go willingly to his death. Jesus could have stopped it. He could have stopped it, but he didn't. Because he loves us. And he knows that if he died, he would take our sin and our shame and our guilt and our wrongdoing and all the filth and the muck of the world upon himself. And he would open up a way for those who put their trust in him to be with God forever. It was an act of tremendous love and sacrifice on Jesus' part. When Mary poured that expensive oil on Jesus' head, she didn't know any of this. But with hindsight, we do. Should our love and devotion to Jesus be any less than Mary's? No. So the question for us today is this. What does it mean for us in our situation? What does it mean for me in my situation to take the lid off that alabaster jar of perfume and pour it all out for Jesus? That's a question we need to ask ourselves. Or to put it another way, what does true love and devotion to Christ look like in our context? What does true love and devotion to Christ look like in our context? Let's keep that question in our minds. Think about it, meditate on it, pray about it, and use it as a catalyst for change. Now, we can't map this situation with the perfume directly onto our context. Apart from anything else, even if we do happen to have an expensive jar of perfume worth in excess of $100,000 sitting around the house, we haven't got Jesus physically here with us. But one thing is clear. One thing is absolutely clear. Our love for Jesus 
should result in a reordering of our priorities, which leads to generosity and sacrifice and love and devotion. If we are to live well, if we are to live well, Jesus must be our greatest treasure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we are so easily distracted. We're easily drawn away. We get our priorities wrong. We don't live as we should. We know that. But we pray, Father, that increasingly each one of us will see you as our greatest treasure and live in the light of that. Help us to recognize that everything else we have is worthless without you. Help us to see the true meaning and point of our lives, the purpose that you've given us. Help us to be full of love and generosity and sacrifice and devotion. Help us to put you first and in so so doing to live our lives to the full. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.